Hello, hello, and welcome to SEO in the Lab. Today we have Eli Schwartz coming to us from SurveyMonkey. Thanks so much, Eli, for coming on. Great to be here, Alexis. It's, uh, I really appreciate this, and it's such an honor. Oh, <laughs> thanks so much. No, seriously, thanks for being on. For our listeners, would you mind giving yourself a brief introduction? Sure. So uh, while we're recording this, I, I uh, lead growth at certainly SEO growth at SurveyMonkey. I'm actually going off on my own to work with some handpicked companies and helping them with their technical SEO strategy. So depending on when the podcast launch, I may either be on my own or may still be at SurveyMonkey. But the, leading up to this, I nice. actually have been at SurveyMonkey almost seven years where I joined as the first person to ever build SEO. So they 12-year-old company at the time had never had any SEO and all mm. organic traffic was just going in brand terms. And over the, the last few years, built out this architecture for like how SEO should work at SurveyMonkey and then mm -hmm. really focus broader on how to get our international SEO working because we had the we had an international product but we had no international mm -hmm. organic traffic at all. And now at the point where that we are right now, we are uh, SEO is a significant driver of revenue, one of the largest drivers of revenue in the company. And it's something where it has a very uh, important say in everything that happens around technical infrastructure. So that's something that looking back, I never thought would happen. I never thought we'd have as much success. And, and you know, I really enjoy working with other companies to kind of do the same thing where they're just not tapping into the organic visibility. And you take that step back and realize, like, how can you improve organic visibility? And how can you help SEO work better across the company? And it's not just SEO should be something that is a checkbox, but it's SEO should be a driver, Definitely. Of, you know, be a strong contributor of revenue. And do you think it was a long time to get to that stage where you guys were sort of the sought out audience? Yeah. So I think- And, and leaders. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's two things that SEO teams need to think about within companies. One is they have to demonstrate their own expertise. So unfortunately in our industry, there's so many books and blogs and podcasts, of course, talking about SEO. And it allows people that aren't doing this on a day-to-day -day basis to feel like they have some surface level knowledge on how to do SEO. So, you know, everyone thinks that they can, let's say, drive a boat, but nobody uh -huh. thinks that they can fly a plane. So I don't know if a plane is the right analogy for SEO, but for a larger company, it could be. It could be quite disastrous mm. if it's done wrong. So when you have all these people that they're, yeah. they're listening to podcasts and they're reading blogs and they're reading books and they feel like mm. they have SEO knowledge, they don't want to work with an SEO team and they, you know, their, their main job might be being an engineer, or maybe being a web developer or a designer, and they're making mm. costly mistakes. So the SEO team demonstrating their expertise, it, it helps improve their profile within the company. And the second piece is the SEO team really coming up with a strategy that works with the company and, and you know they're easy to work mm -hmm. with instead of someone that just says no or someone that says you have to do something that they don't want to do. Mm -hmm. So I have a question going back to your first point sure. on demonstrating expertise. What do you do if someone comes to you and says, hey, we've read this blog and we think this is the case? How do you how do you deal with that person that thinks they know everything and really maybe doesn't? Same I like, full picture. Yeah, I, I like to have as much data as possible around anything I'm recommending. Mm -hmm. So it, uh, yeah. whatever the question is, I can try to point to something I've run uh, as a test or something I'm curious about. And I'll also, if I mm -hmm. don't know, I'll, I'll admit I don't know. So an earlier yeah. example where, you know, I, I sort of learned this at SurveyMonkey was I joined the company and, you know, wanted to follow SEO best practices. And we had 302 redirects everywhere. We had no 301 redirects. So I, I made yep. the recommendation we should change our 302s to 301. 
For the most part, mm-hmm. that was fine. It actually improved our indexation and improved our rankings. But there were some areas where 302s, I yeah. couldn't get those 302s changed. And I had an engineer tell me that uh, SEO doesn't get to tell any engineers what to do, which is kind of a problem. If SEO can't tell engineers what to do, then we can't really do our job. So in that case, I uh, worked with that engineer and then tried to come up with a, a great example of how it, things might improve. And the truth is mm-hmm. I couldn't find a better, I couldn't find a good example. And I was willing to just test it to see what would happen if in that case we left the 302s. You know what? It worked. So I earned a lot of respect in engineer's eyes because like we came to a solution together. And you know, when I made recommendations that I wanted that engineer to do, he listened because he knew I wasn't just going to be a pain in his ass and just demand things. Definitely. So starting off small and building your case. I love that idea. And using data as much as possible. When you don't know, run an experiment. Because a lot of times I find the SEO best practices that everyone believes to be true are, you know, could just be contrived or could be something that Google said, but they, you know, they, they oversimplify and it may not work for a particular website or, or it could be that some blog just made it up. Mm-hmm. So the only way you're re- really going to learn what the best practices is, is to test it in real life. Definitely. And how do you on your team build that testing infrastructure? I think one of the things that a lot of people struggle with is they'll test something three years ago and then they struggle to test it. And in today's world, every six months, we probably have to reevaluate everything that we know because it may or may not be true still. Absolutely. So I have on my team, we have a a strong testing culture where everything we think Mm -hmm. and everything we read, we just test against it. So for example... Mm -hmm. Uh, we just ran a test to see whether uh, if we put redirects within Google Tag Manager, so that's complete JavaScript, if Google would follow the redirect and index the new page. Surprise, surprise, they yep. do, right? So I don't know whether they're always going to do that because we submitted it on Google Search Console, so it's not like they came and crawled the page on their own. But it was interesting to yep. me that they do follow that redirect and they do index the new page, even though, again, it was completely in JavaScript. So I have a you know, interesting relationship with JavaScript. I would never want to build something completely out of JavaScript, but you also don't want to write it off if it's absolutely necessary. If you, the only way you can redirect to new pages with JavaScript, that may, may work. And, you know, going back to Google Lexus, like I know we talked at an SMX about your tests and I love how broad you think and, you know, you include tests are with Baidu and Gandex and Bing, and that's that's necessary. Even if, you know, Baidu might have, you know, half a percent market share in the U.S., just understanding how their in, how their their algorithm works and how their indexation works is so valuable because you can get that edge. So, you know, we try to have that same testing culture on my team where mm-hmm. we're curious about things and we want to learn how they really work, so we run a test. Definitely. Yeah, it is fun to see how there are differences between the different search engines. It ends up being really cool, even if it's not something that you would use during like your everyday working with your primary clients. Okay, so going back to one thing, what is your company going to be called? Does it have a name? So people want to look out for you? I'm curious. Uh, I have a name, but if you Google it, nothing exists. So I'll have okay. to. <laughs> so it's a mystery, a secret. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. So now it's, it's elishwartz.co. elishwartz.co. Nice. But Check I, it out, people. I have three kids, so I'm trying to do some sort of uh, combination of their names for you know, a company name. Nice. Okay. So you've worked, I've seen, obviously you've worked for SurveyMonkey, you've consulted for Quora, Zendesk. So I'm really curious, what is most challenging about working with a product that has a very strong free component to it or free experience or light experience? 
Are there any challenges that come with that or does it actually make your job easier? Actually, it makes my job a lot harder. And this is why. Really? Oh, that's yes. so fun. <laughs> so my job in, in with working with organic and increasing visibility is to do just that. Help organ- help there be more mm-hmm. organic traffic, help there be help indexation mm-hmm. increase, help drive more of whatever the KPI is. The challenge is when it's yep. a free product, the easiest thing I can convert into is free users from organic traffic. However, there's mm-hmm. no real business impact from those free users, at least immediately. Yep. Other pieces of the product have to work together to help convert those people. So now if everyone mm-hmm. in the company is judged by how much revenue they're driving, but I can't drive mm-hmm. revenue right away because there's this free component where people now they join and they have to use the product and then they have to decide they want to take out yeah. a credit card. I'm a little bit removed from that final KPI, which is most important for the business. Now, when I'm working with something yep. where it's e-commerce and it's all about buying, am I ranking on the things that enough people are coming in and are they finding a good fit with their search results that they could just buy? That's so much easier to say, here's how much organic is driving to yep. the bottom line. When it's free, it's like, well, I'm driving all these free users and someone else yep. broke something which now made them not pay. Yeah, no, definitely. It's almost like an infrastructural disadvantage against other channels absolutely, and other silos within the business. Absolutely. So when a startup is great because you can say, look how many users I'm acquiring. But when you're no longer a startup and you actually have to pay the bills, you can say, well, thank, it's great you're acquiring all these free users, but they just cost us money. Definitely. Definitely. And do you think there's a solution out there, like another infrastructure that would work better than this? Not from a pricing standpoint, I think uh, free and free yeah. trials are great. However, you yeah. really need a great attribution system. So if yeah. you're doing yeah. a multi-touch attribution system, you can say, you know, I've acquired all these free users and here's how important it was that they came from organic. Now, if you're doing something like first touch, now uh, I've been worked on projects where they, they use first touch. And the challenge with that is you get too much credit for certain things because I acquired the free yep. user with organic and later on they paid two years mm-hmm. later, they paid, maybe I don't deserve that credit. And then if yeah. you're doing last touch, organic's not really going to get as much credit as it should, because what's going to happen is it, especially if you're working with a, a company or a product that has a large paid budget, you're going to acquire someone higher off in the funnel. And they're just curious. So they're going to come in organic and they're going to read the content and they're going to think about the product. Now you're going to retarget the hell out of them on Facebook mm-hmm. and Google and paid is going to get that last click attribution. Or maybe they gave their email address and email will get that last click attribution. So you really, you need a blended attribution where you can look at all those touches and see which one of them was the most likely to lead to that final conversion and who gets the credit for it. And how do we judge all these channels? Nice. And you guys have that. <laughs> I wish I could say we had the ideal, but there, I don't think anyone's ever going to have that ideal. In an ideal world, yes, you have that multi-touch, uh, but it's hard to build. Google has a decent one, but you have to implement it and trust it. The one thing I have found, though, this was a suggestion by our analytics team here, is at least in GA, they have actually this interesting report where you can actually see a user's journey. It's called like User Explorer, and you can go and filter those users and look at their exact journey which is not really helpful if you're looking for the sum of everything. Um, that would be more like a behavioral flow type report in GA, but like just seeing how someone goes throughout the site sometimes can like at the most granular level can sometimes help with that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of, of the GA attribution, but again, you have to set it up and make sure it can work. Yeah. Really cool. And I was thinking with infrastructure, not so much as like 
fr the free product, but I was thinking more like internally and companies, we tend to think about SEO as like, you're part of media and then there's also paid and you guys live in these separate worlds or like you have a display team and all of those different teams. And one of the things that's been popping up recently that I've been hearing, which I'm not really sure if this was huge or anything, um, just I've only heard it with a few clients, is this new infrastructure where you have a team aligned to like a customer segment. And basically you all try to, you have the same KPI and you try to reach the same goals there. So I was thinking like, you're almost as SEO set up in this unfair silo where you're trying to fight against these other channels. But if you guys were all fighting together for getting that conversion, I wonder if it would be a more efficient architecture. Yeah, I think the larger companies get, the more complicated these things are because there's different managers and different yeah. the reporting infrastructure. And, and yeah. you know, it, when companies are smaller, like earlier on in my career, I was just the marketer. So I owned all the channels. Mm -hmm. So if we acquired yeah. users, it was, it was to my credit. But then as companies get bigger, you can't do that. You have to farm it out. Yep. Then you create that competition. And then, you know, I've, throughout my career, I've reported to CTOs. I've reported to CPOs. I've reported to CMOs. So like, you know, it's it's always different in who wants what sort of KPI. So I just think that yeah. as companies get bigger, that's always going to be a mess. And you basically have to stay in your lane and figure out how to be as successful as possible. Definitely. Yeah, no, that's so interesting. And so what made you go from general marketing to specifically organic? Like what's your YouTube organic search? So I think of organic as a puzzle. There's no rule book. Yeah. I, I've done paid marketing and I, it's kind of like day trading. There's formulas you follow. You know, I, I did paid marketing mm -hmm. with, you know, significant budgets and using Excel spreadsheets and using the Google AdWords editor. And that was complicated. And now I feel like it's probably a little bit easier. It makes even you know, more sense to use an agency where you just get economics to scale and, you know, they, they're following best practices and they're using software that just keeps changing everything for you while you sleep. But mm -hmm. organic is creative. There's no, like I said earlier, there's, there's no best practices. There's no rule book. You really have to figure out the unique fingerprint of every single site and what will help improve traffic and how do you grow a site so it, it easy, becomes even bigger organically. Because there's no, you know, it's always a puzzle to figure out how that's going to happen. And then the other thing that drives me into more into organic now is I, I think we're about to see this huge revival of interest in organic as we have a privacy revolution across the world. You know, it's obviously very, very, very big in Europe where they have GDPR and people consider even an email address that they put on their own website to be personal identifiable information, which that, that may be going to a certain extreme. However, here in the U.S., we have a, a new law uh, coming from California, the, the California Consumer Privacy Act, which is a little similar to GDPR, and people are becoming more aware of their privacy. And as a result, Google and Facebook are now going to have to tighten up privacy and maybe allow people to target less, which means that prices are going to go up. You're going to spend just the same on, on advertising or maybe more and get a little bit less because you can't do any granular targeting. And as this happens, I think people will start looking at organic and say, hey, we, we didn't really put as much effort in there as, as we should. Maybe there's value there. So I think we're about to see this you know, happen in the next two years where more attention is shifted towards organic. And what makes that even more interesting is as uh, people become more interested in organic, Google is becoming even better at figuring out how to sort of cut SEO out where they're using their AI and, you know, you might want to follow any best practice you think will work and they're going to go around it and the algorithm will be a little bit more dynamic. So they just think that that makes it a lot more interesting to be involved. 
Definitely. And when you say go around, do you think we're going to become more like, I know you worked in Asia for a while, like more like neighbor where you have a platform that is owned by basically everything is owned by neighbor and there's different components that kind of come together to make the SERP. So a neighbor is interesting. So uh, I think of neighbor like AOL, you know, 20 years mm-hmm. ago, where everything was on on AOL. You, all your search was there. Yes. Email was there. But neighbor has a search algorithm, which is fairly weak. And I think pretty susceptible yeah. to yes. spamming and, and paid links. So I don't think we'll ever yep. get there. I think where we are right now, where, where Google's going to go around SEO is that uh, let's say when I first started doing SEO, uh, keywords were really, really important where mm-hmm. synonyms didn't matter as much. So you had to pick the keyword you wanted to target and someone else could target the synonym and there would be almost completely different rankings. Now, yep. Google, does, it's not even a matter of synonyms. It's a matter of intent. So uh, right. let's say a doctor and a healer are not necessarily synonyms, but based on your context, Google will determine that you want to get medical help so Mm -hmm. it becomes further away from keywords and all the things that you would know is like oh make sure to use your keyword in the title tag make sure you use your keyword in your h1 maybe even get some anchor text you know across your site for that keyword google will Mm -hmm. go around that because they're going to figure out the intent and try to match that for users now not to say that seo is not that or you don't need seo help in that instance that's where you need a lot of seo help to understand what the intent is of the users and how do you make your content and your website match that intent that's not something that's ever going to happen naturally i don't think there will ever be a world where google does not need that person in the middle to help translate what websites are trying to do to make it better crawlable for google to index it definitely awesome Okay. So as a head of international search, is there anything else that you found like surprising about different markets that you worked in? Yeah. So there's a huge cultural component in international, which is why I always love doing things internationally. Because mm-hmm. we, when you think of international, especially when you think of international search, like the easy way out is to do translations. So to take your keyword and to say, well, this is what the keyword should be in Spanish, or this is what the keyword should be in German. Yep. But the, the truth is, is that context changes and the way you translate it changes. Yeah. So it may be that, uh, you know, for example, a cell phone, right? So we call it a cell phone, which is, I guess, short for cellular phone or cellular telephone. But mm-hmm. the rest of the world will, mm-hmm. will call it mm-hmm. mobile or there's like different mm-hmm. slang in different languages. So were you to throw that into yep. a dictionary, throw it into Google Translate, you might get the literal translation, but nobody's searching that. So I, don't, I like the, the content and the contextual and content and cultural part of figuring out what is it that people are searching for and how do you match that intent in another language? And it's even more fun when you don't really understand that language. Now you have to sort of understand it in a language that you have no idea what you're talking about. So, you know, there was a time when I first started doing international search, I was learning keywords and I think in Italian, and then I was going on vacation to Rome and I was looking for a hotel and I was having a hard time trying to book a room and put my dates in. And I realized that I had defaulted to actually using the website in Italian because I was so used to trying to browse websites in foreign languages that I, I forgot that I did not need to keep it in the language I found it. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. And do you think for international, what do you think are the key success factors that international brands should be looking into today for international search? Is it mostly just aligning on their customer specific intent and making sure, of course, that their translations are as accurate as possible? Yeah, I think that's the biggest challenge. It's making sure you've done the same work so that things are equal between mm-hmm. 
English and international. So it's not just the keywords yep. match, but the entire experience matches. And then the other big one is I don't think of SEO in a vacuum where our job as you know, people focused on organic is to just generate traffic from search engines. I think of it as a holistic view of we need to drive people from search engines all the way into the funnel into conversion. So a big one is yep. don't discount what you need to do on the calls to action. So like calls to action are huge. Like in English, you know, we have some standard calls to action and you'll see that on every website. So if it's free, it's sign up. If it's buying it, it'll say buy or add to shopping cart. And then you have to understand how that's done in other languages. Like I know in, in German, they, I think for free, they use just starting, which means like, will you just start already? So you just have to match the CPA and you can't just translate it to like sign up. So maybe in German, they're like, you didn't really ask me properly. I don't think I actually want to sign up. So like I'm not ready for that. I need to just start. Exactly. <laughs> I'm just ready for the beginning. <laughs> or it's That's like, so interesting. Yeah, maybe it's too direct. Like you'll see like in English, you'll be like, click here. And, and then, you know, maybe you need to soften that in languages with a less direct and be like, don't tell me where to click. I will decide if I want to click that. Definitely. I love this view that you have that organic extends to the conversion on the actual page. Cause I think a lot of times SEOs are held responsible for how well organic is converting overall as a channel. And like you said, it's sometimes hard to control what happens later down the funnel when our whole idea is just getting people onto the site initially. So how do you how do you deal with that? Do you ever have pushback from people that say, oh, well, we don't want to modify the user experience because. So I, I think, yeah, that's the long process. And when I work with clients or when I've worked with, you know, in, in serving monthly, it's, it's really about mm -hmm. increasing the visibility of the organic team to say, this is our goal. And you don't want to do SEO if all our job yep. is to, to drive traffic. So like earlier in my SEO career, yep. I worked at a company where the, my KPI was how high I could rank on certain keywords. Now, those keywords didn't do much for us. It was like, you know, wanting to rank on generic terms, generic head terms. Like, what's the point of that? If your content didn't match what the key, what the intent behind the keyword was, and people don't even necessarily search those kinds of head terms anymore, we've been taught that you can search more specifically instead of, I would yeah. like, I, I I want baseball, so I'm just going to search the word baseball. I, I'll be more specific there. Yeah. <laughs> so, I think SEO teams need to you know make it their business that their job is to drive relevant organic traffic and not to just rank on keywords and not to just increase traffic, but they're they're helping to drive the business forward. And if they're not, then they are just sort of overhead and almost a vanity metric of here's how much traffic we got and here's our, our rankings. It doesn't do anything. I love that idea. Don't be a vanity channel. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, you know, yeah, it's hard to get promoted. It's hard to get visibility. It's hard to do anything if you don't matter that much. And I would say like in companies, many times the pay team more visibility because they spend money. Yes. Yeah. So you should make sure that your team, if you're on the organic team, has as much visibility and has as much importance because you're not spending money. You're doing the exact same, same thing as the pay team and you're driving that traffic for free. So how do you get the attention internally when that type of thing happens? Because I think that's a lot a thing a lot of people struggle with is paid is so, you know, you have to set the budget for it and you pretty much know what you're going to get out, what you put in pretty much. But organic, it's just so hard to predict and forecast. So it's hard to like exactly convey that sometimes if you're not in the data all the time. Yeah. So that's a great point. So use data. So if it's backwards looking, <laughs> yeah, if it's backwards looking, use as much data as possible to say, here's how much mm -hmm. traffic we drove, which converted to this amount of revenue. 
And here's how much we would not have had to spend on brand. So you're using Google Search Console, you can figure out how many brand clicks you get on the brand. And then you can take that same number yep. and how much you spent on your brand and paid and say, had we our brand not ranked on our brand, people would have clicked the paid ad because that's what we do. And that's how much it would have cost us. Mm -hmm. So you could start using numbers there. And one of the things I like to point out, and I just wrote a blog post on this, is if you look at the ROI for the SEO channel, it'll always be the best channel in your entire acquisition set. Whereas if you paid has a specific cost of acquisition, which applies to whatever your, your conversion rates are, you get a hundred clicks, one out of those hundreds convert into a paid user and that's it. Whereas organic, you can do something organically, like create a piece of content or make a page rank. Mm -hmm. That page could rank for five years. Now, every single conversion yeah. that comes from that page will drive down the average cost forever. So there's no like there's no other channel like that. So I just try to use as many of those metrics as possible. Say here's your your CAC and here's your cost of acquisition for paid and here's your cost of acquisition today for organic because we only spent five hundred dollars. We only spent a thousand dollars on this piece of content, and our, and if you divide that amongst all the conversions, our CAC is really really low. And I would exclude the overhead of the, the people, exclude the overhead of, the, of anybody but like someone that's purely focused on SEO because those engineers were going to mm -hmm. exist already. The designers were going to exist already. The hosting costs existed already. It's really just the content or whatever effort, whatever that costs you to generate that SEO traffic. Definitely. And that's something we see a lot with our clients too, that as paid gets more and more expensive as time goes on, you know, the prices only go up in paid, but you have potential with organic to have a long-term sustainable, like you said, ROI, but also the ability to build a community that's meaningful, which I think is really cool. Absolutely. Love that. And if you are doing forecasting, I would say be somewhat conservative in your forecast. There's all sorts of forecasts online about how you can calculate conversion rates. So if you mm -hmm. you take some keywords and then you look at how much traffic there is on each keyword, and if you use Google, mm -hmm. something like Google Keyword Planner, they're only showing you the exact keyword search for that keyword. So they're not showing you these mm -hmm. synonyms, not showing you any related keywords. So yep. I don't know what the estimate would be. So say it's only, I don't know, 20% or maybe maximum 50% of the amount of search you could get on all the related keywords. So if you just use mm -hmm. that and then be super conservative about where you think you're going to rank, and if you actually know what you're doing, you should probably meet your forecast, just not at all in the way you said you would. Like you'll get as much traffic as you think you will, just not from the keywords you thought you'd rank on. Definitely. Great tip. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So this question comes up a lot and I'm really excited to ask this to you, but on your LinkedIn, LinkedIn profile, I saw that you've done certificates and have different programming skills in C++, Java, JavaScript, PHP, and of course, MySQL database. So have you found that really useful in your work or other areas? Um, this is something that comes up a lot with SEOs, like should SEOs learn programming type of stuff? So I happen to have liked it and I, I found it interesting to know that I could never build a website. I could probably take mm -hmm. apart a website and put it back together, but I don't think I could make one from scratch. Yeah. What I have found mm -hmm. really helpful is I can make my requests in a way that I'm speaking the same language as, a, as an engineer. Yeah. And I'm now, I'm not trying to say, hey, here's all the things we need to do. Now uh, mm -hmm. make it happen and let me know when it's done. It's more like I know that logical process they need to take because I've had scratched the surface of what needs to be done. Yep. And that is helpful for making this request. The other thing that I find very helpful from the, the classes and courses I took is that I can actually read the code. So if there's a problem in the code, I can read it. If JavaScript is doing something funky, which I've seen, you know, both mm -hmm. in my job and, and in sites that I've had that have been hacked, 
it's great to be able to read through the script and see what it's doing. So that that's where it's been helpful. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, I think something like a Code Academy or Khan Academy or, or Udemy are, are just fine for SEOs to learn what they need to know. As long as like they have some sort of ability to learn it. Otherwise, it's you're giving yourself a migraine for no reason. Yeah. No, definitely. And I love that idea of being able to speak like one unified language. And I also will say that I would doubt that most engineers in the universe today would be able to know everything about programming. So if when you hire people and they're put on a new team, like they learn very specific things about the particular product that they're working with, which I think just is a testament also to your skills probably that you know how to deal with the product well. Yeah. And when you're working in larger companies, nothing is straightforward. So where you think, oh, it's really simple to replace title tags. Don't you just go in and, you know, write the title tag or go into the CMS, but maybe there is no CMS. And maybe the way a title tag is generated is put in the database and then it's dynamically pulled out of that database. Now, if you understand how that code is and you actually look at it, you know, on, on GitHub or something, you understand how to make that request of how to put those titles into the database so they come out the right way. I love this idea. And then also being able to debug is such a cool thing too. So very yes. useful skill to have. Absolutely. One of the things you noted too was that you work on go-to-market strategies for SEO. So I'm curious because I've never worked on like a specific product. So what goes into preparing a go-to-market strategy, especially if it's a new emerging market? It's always something different. And it, it's really, yep. you know, doing research and understanding if there's existing players. I'd say the hardest thing about doing SEO research when yep. you're doing a go-to-market uh, strategy is if the product and category don't exist yet. So mm. how are you going to estimate how much traffic there can be? How are you going to estimate how much, uh, how things should rank when you don't have any sense of whether it could rank? And the hardest things are, you know, this is always a challenge when when brands come up with a company name and then you type that mm. company name into search and Google has a, did you mean? So they're not, yeah. <laughs> they're just skipping it. They're not even saying I've shown you the results for, however, you could see the results for this one, but they're just saying, no matter what you type, that's a typo. <laughs> yeah. So those are hard. So like if you're inventing product names or inventing categories, it's hard to do that research. So, mm. I mean, Google suggest is great. Doing uh, research like uh, on sites like Quora and Reddit just to get a sense of, you know, what are the words people look for or is there interest in it? Google Trends to see mm-hmm. the name of the past, like just pulling in everything because this is even before keyword research. And then maybe you can get to keyword research if you can find enough demand. When something is already exists and all you're doing is putting an SEO strategy for it, a lot easier to like look at the competitors. I like the Ahrefs tool to see what, yep. the competitor, what keywords the competitors rank for see what uh, sort of backlinks they have and come up with a plan on how to sort of replicate that in in your own unique way. Awesome. Okay. So your resume also notes that you are an SEO evangelist within your organization. So what type of activities does this include? How do you promote um, SEO within your organizations and how can other people take that and translate that into theirs? So SEO can't live in a vacuum and SEO can't live in a silo. So it's really about meeting with people and teaching them SEO and the outcome of mm-hmm. when we teach SEO, and, and this is a secret that only the people that do SEO should be listening to, everyone else close your ears, which is the when your goal when you teach SEO is it's really complicated and if you have any questions, you should come to me. Don't try to do it yourself. So you should mm-hmm. teach SEO at a high enough level that people understand how valuable your, your contributions are and how much mm-hmm. they should rely on you. And that's what I think of evangelism within companies 
is to spread that knowledge and spread the awareness of what you're doing. And early on in you know, every company I've ever been at, every project I've ever worked on, it's all about showing your impact and showing slides and that mm-hmm. show how much you have driven from organic traffic and show where you've come from because you've made that huge yeah. contribution. And, and you know, everyone around companies does that and there's no reasons that the SEO should be humble. So evangelism is really spread the word of, of how valuable it is and how everyone can mm-hmm. contribute either by helping or not screwing it up and coming to you when it's time to, to do something that's related to, to organic visibility. Definitely. Okay. So what do you think, why do you think SEO is so important for e-commerce businesses? And I think we've touched on this a little bit throughout the podcast. Obviously it's like the most efficient ROI driver. But are there any other things that come to mind? Absolutely. Yeah, I have a, something I love thinking about in this. And one day I'll write the blog post. But if you think about e-commerce and who wins from the e-commerce world, it's Amazon. And how did Amazon mm-hmm. win that? In my opinion, is it's because of, of SEO. So years mm-hmm. ago when SEO was building out, it just, you know, even on books, they made SEO very important. And kudos to the team that did that. And I'm sure they're somewhere else doing very well right now. But they made SEO very important. <laughs> They have a strong uh, culture of SEO testing and building around SEO. And if you ever, you know, it, they have, it's more complicated now because it's a bigger site, but they've, they've done a great job of like internally linking and making sure everything's as visible as possible. So mm-hmm. Amazon prioritized that. Other e-commerce brands like Target and Walmart, Best Buy, and whoever competes with Amazon did not. So that's why SEO mm-hmm. is so important. Look at how Amazon became a category leader in almost everything for e-commerce because they were able to be the only website that ranked and everyone else is now mm-hmm. playing catch up. So if e-commerce were to change or there's a new e-commerce vertical and let's say CBD becomes something that's legal to sell in every single state, Amazon does not mm-hmm. dominate. Make SEO really important and it'll lead to domination. It leads to you becoming the default. The reason that, you know, my opinion, again, is that Mm. people are going to Amazon to search for every product that they want to buy is that by searching on Google, they've been shown that Amazon will have every product. So let's skip that Google step and just go to Amazon.com. So SEO is, you know, so valuable and you may not see it right away in e-commerce, but if you put that foundation in for SEO and build that site properly, it will pay off so much more than any other channel. I love that idea of like conditioning. Like we've been conditioned to go to Amazon. Yeah, I mean, look at the Amazon is so conditioned us that we should go to Amazon that they're letting they're help, they're teaching us to do search on their echoes that aren't even supposed to be doing search, but we just think Amazon is everything. I know, right? That's so interesting too. So, do you anticipate how do you anticipate SEO changing within the next five years? Knowing that we've come from these roots that we're all in some ways, at least on e-commerce, trying to play catch up to Amazon. So I, I think across every vertical, SEO is going to change because SEO is going to be more important as paid act becomes so much harder. The other thing I was saying earlier about you know privacy making paid more complicated, paid is also growing. So there are so many businesses mm-hmm. that have not done paid yet, like maybe you know your your average lawyer and your average doctor. So as as more people start doing paid marketing the pool of available people that can even see the ads now becomes more competitive. So that just gets more expensive. And again, we're going to be that channel that companies need to focus on. So I, I see SEO just growing and something that everyone's going to want to figure out. And it's really hard mm-hmm. to win at it unless you do it right, because Google will do their best to try to understand it. But if you break all their rules, make a terribly designed site, make an uncrawlable site, leave a robots file yeah. out, not use any keywords, use only images, things like mm-hmm. that. Not a chance that you can rank. Definitely. Definitely. Awesome. Okay. So for the closing question, I ask this to everyone that comes on the podcast. And basically 
It is what are your three nuggets of advice for working in on an SEO e-commerce site? And this, of course, can be anything like interpersonal, site-related, anything that you found useful for you. So the, the first piece of advice I would say is be super diplomatic. Always have a uh, an approach that's diplomatic. There, there's always a, there's a mm-hmm. practice, but coming to something with plan A, plan B, and plan C. So plan A is here's the, the ideal. This is what I need for SEO. And then if you don't do this, then it's, it's really bad for SEO. Then plan C mm-hmm. like is the worst thing you could possibly accept. And plan B is what you're willing to accept. So you come at it with plan A of like, you, there's no, you can't be using JavaScript on this page. If you use JavaScript on the page, we're all getting fired and we're, all, we're not going to have any money. So you want to scare them and eventually you're going to say, well, is there some way we can do what you now consider plan B? Like, what if we only used half JavaScript and you, you can come back and say, well, I, I guess that's something I can work with. And you look like the greatest diplomat in the world because you've given in. And that you should always have plan C in your pocket, which is something that you can sort of deal with if mm-hmm. you haven't mm-hmm. scared them enough. But don't tell a friend about plan C. So at least you've gone two steps back to be diplomatic. So second thing I would say, so diplomatic's first one. Second thing is really go back to basics. I think that SEO is as simple as it was years ago, where uh, SEO was based on keywords and title tags and just cross-linking. It still is. So don't overcomplicate it. It really is as mm-hmm. simple as that. The thing is, you know, mm-hmm. it doesn't look good in blog posts when it's just a couple words of, hey, just focus on your keywords and focus on your title tags. But it, it's that, and it we've overcomplicated it. And then the third thing I would say is that this is the most important channel. So you may not see a payoff right away. However, keep working at it and it will come. I was just talking to someone the other day who I'd I'd helped out with an organic strategy. And they told me that, you know, month after month, they hadn't seen anything happen. And I promised them that it would eventually happen. And four months in, they looked back and like, hey, Eli was right. It just took a lot of time. Like we're now seeing that this channel is driving 30% of our, our conversions. So it takes time. It's worth the effort. It's worth selling to whoever you need to sell it to that, that, you know, you should invest in it and just be patient. Mm -hmm. Patience. I love that. So be diplomatic, keep things simple and be patient. I love it. Thank you so much, Eli. Thanks for coming on today. Always great to be here, Alexis. It's really, really an honor to be here. Thank you. Stop. (laughs) All right. Signing off. Ciao. Thanks for listening to SEO in the Lab. I hope it was super useful. Make sure to check out technicalseo.com backslash insights backslash podcast to get episode notes, transcripts, and some bonus content. Also, if you have any questions or feedback, reach out at seointhelab at merkelinc.com. You can also catch me on Twitter at Alexis K. Sanders. Thank you so much, Hanshen, for intro and outro music. Until next time, this is Alexis signing off. Ciao.